3: Bloomberg is now on your dashboard with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. It gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers.
4: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co host, Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg
4: experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Ben Emmons joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, he doesn't mail it in or phone it in. He's a principal senior portfolio manager and head of fixed income at New Edge Wealth. Um, Ben, lots of economic data today and really this week here. I I don't know, I mean, this services data kind of took me by surprise here. Again, the ISM services data, and we talk about services, it's important. It's 70% of our economy. Came in at fifty point six, so it's still above fifty, still showing some uh, expansion in the economy, but well below last month and well below the consensus of fifty two point five. That's kind of got uh, the bonds here yields uh, coming in a little bit and stocks higher. What would you make of that services data?
5: Yeah, Paul, I thought that the surprise there was that employment component, you know, dropping below fifty pretty sharply. Yeah, I think that's what that triggered the the rally in bonds, because. It's a bit contradicting to what we saw yesterday with the PMI services data. Now these surveys are a little different from each other, but nonetheless, in the employment component, that survey was up. And it was actually, I think, part of the reason why we saw better payroll data this morning. And so I guess this survey is indicating that, you know, Some of the people in the supply uh, management uh, survey view that the economy is perhaps getting weaker or they're having less demand for labor. Either way, you're getting this whipsaw on the market this morning, yield goes up to 4.10 on on the 10 year, on the payroll report and reverse back down to 396. So I think what it tells us is that this is a good economy. Uh, There will be some rate cuts coming in the future, uh, but it is not like a recession economy either. So you're not seeing much lower yields I think from here.
1: Yeah, so Ben, let's get into the rate cuts that you talked about, because we have the jobs out, we have ISM, Um, you also get research from Wall Street firms, from banks, so when do you see these rate cuts possibly kicking
5: in? So I think the March rate cut is, is, is probably too soon, and that's just because the way the Fed has communicated it so far. You know, they've given us an idea that they are having projections out, that probably gives them the confidence that they actually this year can lower rates compared to last year when they said resoundingly, like, there's no case for rate cuts. But a March rate cut would mean that inflation data we're getting out until that time would see such a significant decline that they start reacting to that and then make the case that March is the live meeting. So I think from here, uh, Lisa, it will be more about, as we're getting Several months of inflation, employment data, and it continues to go towards the, you know, the goal that they have: two percent inflation and unemployment rate maybe a little bit above four. That probably is more close to June to get the first rate cut, and then we really are into the second half of the year. So I don't think you're going to see six rate cuts this year.
4: So Ben, what did you make? We haven't spoken to you in a while here. What did you make of that big move we saw in the markets there in the last? I don't know, 10 weeks of the year last year. We just had the 10 year go from 5% to three and a quarter. We had the stocks just rip.
5: I mean, what was that? Yeah, that's actually the right right, uh, you know, way to say it. What, what was it really about? Was it just about yields going down? Because one CPI report showed that the owner's equivalent of rent finally starts to decline. I don't see it in New York, but okay, it's it's finally declining. So that triggered the, 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 the move down in yields and it was a relief. And you're getting all the high beta and small caps and everything. Start to price in this idea that, yeah, okay, the economy is not gonna go to recession. It will be a soft landing, maybe even no landing, I think, because it's just simply an economy staying on track. Uh, and at the same time, it's about those who, who had money on the sidelines redeploying in something that lacked relative to technology. So sort of a relative catch-up, that I think all, all I think what drove this rally. Now, will it con- continue is to be seen because I think what we're coming into this year is that we're, we're going to keep a Fed still restricted for a bit of time. So the economy, if it does stay in a slower track than last year, you know, you may see stocks not perform so strongly if we saw last she has yields to sort of stay where we are. And I think that's, that's a really important part about that story. Ultimately, it's all about interest rates.
1: Now, yeah, but the, a strong job, jobs market, it's that main kind of engine for resilient consumer spending. Um, and it's pushed a lot of economists to rethink their recession calls. What's, what's your take on that?
5: Yeah, I think the recession call, I'm, I'm, I've never been in that camp. I, I still think there's no recession this year. There may not even be next year. I think here's where I come from. On an important point to make maybe is that the fiscal impulse that we have to the economy, fiscal spending, is not going to change this year. They have agreed on the debt ceiling last year. They have 1% mandatory spending cut across the board. But that's so small, if you, if you think about back in 2011, 12 when they had a 10% mandatory spending cut, which really slowed down the economy, 1% is just not gonna do much for the economy, especially if you're seeing jobs data like this coming out, and you're seeing confidence picking up, and financial conditions being looser, right? So I think it's a economy that stays on track, What could change it is next year, whomever's in the White House. But here's one other thing about that White House race, uh, the new president, whether it's Biden or Trump, which, but what it looks like, either of them wants to stimulate the economy either with tax cuts or with more spending. So either way, I think this recession scenario is not going to play out unless we're getting major fiscal spending contraction. As I mentioned, I don't, I don't think that's the case.
4: So given that backdrop, uh, Ben, kind of what's your, your, your best idea here coming into twenty twenty four? A lot of folks were saying, hey, just be long equity markets, but then you had that huge run up in the yeah. end of the year. And maybe some of the the glory was taken out of there. What's your best idea or do you think about 24?
5: Well, we do look carefully at, at New Edge at valuations. And you know, uh, my colleague, Cameron Dawson, who was on Bloomberg's events the other day, mm-hmm. she kind of made the case on that too, it's saying, look, we do have overvaluation in tech and, and the adjustment of interest rates a bit higher for me, because guess the economy is just better, takes off some of that that, that valuation froth that's in there. Uh, but there was also some, I think, some level of froth coming into uh, you know really high beta elements of the market. So I think you want to play it more a bit more defense. We like energy, we like utility sector, we like some of the healthcare sector. You really pick your, your best parts there. There's very some stocks are very undervalued relative to the market, meaning trading really at low multiples. And actually the earnings forecasts are much more realistic. So not chasing I guess those uh magnificent seven not not really. Yep. So to call like yeah Jeffries like Microsoft. Yep. We all know that Microsoft is a great company and it's good and strong, but you will be chasing it probably here at, this, at these valuation mm-hmm. levels. Um, what I, I like in fixed income and also I think in equity is that emerging markets is an interesting story because we are coming off really restrictive rates in emerging markets and inflation is really moderated there. Uh, there's some really good earnings growth stories both Asia and Latin America. So I think there's an opportunity. We like Japan. There's another market that's continues to be an outperformer in international equity. Um, and then lastly, we gotta watch what the dollar's gonna do this year. If the Fed's gonna lower rates, it's gonna lead likely to a weaker dollar environment. Every time the dollar does go below 100 on the index, it leads to significant rally in energy and commodities. It's been that historically that way. I don't think it's gonna be different this way. Uh, This year, and now whatever happens geopolitically, energy is, I think, a bit undervalued from where it is currently. Same thing somewhat in commodities. Lastly, gold could actually be a strong year for gold given uncertainty and fat easy. It performs quite well in, in, in that environment.
1: Yeah. And just a quick, uh, I want to get an idea of sentiment out there. I mean, you think rising interest rates makes it more expensive for companies to operate. I mean, some of your clients, they're entrepreneurs, they're corporate executives. What's the feeling that they're getting out there now?
5: Well, there's caution. You know, there's this obviously we, we do deal with this election and it's, it's an uncertainty. We also just do the Fed discussion. It's not clear, right, if you actually want to get these rate cuts and how many uncertainty. Uh, while watching what's going on in the Middle East, and, and we don't know how that's gonna exactly play out, so uncertainty. Um, on the other hand, th- there doesn't seem to be this, this slowdown that everybody continues to talk about, that the slowdown that tips us into a recession. So I think that our clients are more about, you know, we like risk, we like to not be out of the market, right? We, we we'd still like some of the areas like private credit or private equity, that's not something we wanna necessarily scale completely out of it because of recession risk. But we don't want you to play the high beta uh, mm-hmm. trade either. Right? Meaning, you know, going really in high risk, really small, small, small caps. Yep. Or, you know, go into, I don't know, uh, crypto and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to play the liquidity high high risk game that way. And be mindful that we do have fixed income. We, we can we can finally get some additional income. That's still really important in, our, in the portfolio this year.
4: Ben Emmons, thanks so much for joining us. Ben Emmons, Principal at New Edge Wealth.
7: You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
4: There is no greater friend to the municipal bond market than me. I tell every governor of the state of new jersey i'm probably the largest private creditor to the state of new jersey through my municipal bond holdings uh chris brigante uh, brigotti he thinks he knows a thing or two about it but senior vice president director of strategic planning at swbc hey chris thanks so much for joining us here in, in in studio fixed income actually had a positive year last year in terms of total return how did the municipal bond market do
8: The municipal bond market had a very good year, and it all really happened in the last two months of the year. It was negative coming into and through October, so the performance actually turned quite positive, about 6.4% to the positive by the end of the year, with over 7% returns coming in November or December. All
4: right, so what are we doing here with the municipal bond market in 2024? What's the call here?
8: The call is to be very strategic in terms of how you approach the market and allocate your capital. Um, A lot of the investors that we're talking to and a lot of the people that we engage directly are really kind of being very cautious on their credit um, approach. Um, Not really going too far out on the credit curve because those credit spreads narrow significantly in the rally through November and December. So now it's a matter of when can you re-engage the market in a more uh, strategic manner further out the curve or down the credit curve. And I think both of those opportunities could happen this year. But I do expect this to be another quite constructive year for the market in general. So what, what
4: else are we doing in the fixed income space here? Because, I,
8: I, you know, 2022
4: is so brutal for cross-fixed income space. Double-digit declines. Declines like the fixed income market had never really seen. Had some positive results in 2023. Any reason for me to own bonds here in 2024?
8: I think there still are. You know, you look at the fact that we've got real – good yields that we have not seen in well over a decade. So for a longer term perspective, you start looking at that and, you know, if you're going to be clipping coupons and be able to grab that 4% yield, if rates remained unchanged, uh, barring the expectation for lower rate environment, which would add additional performance to a bond, if you can lock in 4% or better type of yields in this market, you're really looking at strong performance.
1: And Chris, dig a little bit deeper into what banks are doing with um, some of their
4: muni teams. Did you know, city get, they announced they're getting out of the municipal bond market.
8: They did. He they can't did. do that. They're They group. It's amazing. They, they've, uh, they've made that announcement and backing out of the market. I mean, the market is becoming tougher and tougher. Spreads are narrower. It's becoming much more constrained. Regulators aren't helping. I'm not going to really kind of go down that path too deeply. But it's it's a challenging market for for banks to make money in. And so the strategy and the way you approach it is how can you embed yourself deeper and better with clients to provide better service. And uh, that's one of the goals that we're trying to produce at SWBC is, how can we ingrain ourselves as a partner to those clients and really add value? What
4: does SWBC stand for?
8: Southwest Business Corp.
4: Southwest. Where are you guys based?
8: San Antonio, Texas is headquarters. Nice. Is that where you're from? Are no, you, no. I'm Northern New Jersey. You're so, in Northern New Jersey. Okay, yep. I'm a
4: big fan of San Antonio. Um, all right. So in the in the I don't know. Where are we going to see a new issuance this year? I mean, am I going to see a bunch of new fixed income issuance, credit issuance? Uh, high-yield municipal bonds. Am I going to see a bunch of issuance now that interest rates are coming down, do you think?
8: I think so. I think the opportunity for issuance to rise is um, twofold. Um, one, you look at what happened with the taxable municipal market last year, which was down about 30% in terms of issuance. So I expect that to rebound a little bit. Um, last year, issuance came in around $380 billion, which was a few percentage points lower than the previous year in 22. I expect this year to be a little bit north of 400. Um, and an
4: average year is like five 600?
8: No, an average year of late has been somewhere in that mid to low fours. Uh, mid to low fours. Yeah, okay. yeah, so I expect to get more towards the average, and the opportunity for investors to engage that um, should be well stated.
4: But the municipal bond, like I've been told in the past that municipal bond issuers, municipalities, they don't issue money when rates are low per se. They issue money when they need it. Correct. So aren't we having a bunch of like infrastructure Acts and things like that. Don't we have a bunch of stuff going from the federal government that needs to be funded in the municipal bond market?
8: There are. You know, it's funny. When the infrastructure bill came out several years ago, the the market got all heady, and and for lack of a better way of putting it, in terms of the opportunity for more issuance to come. But those infrastructure things take It takes years to get through the system, through the process at local or even larger municipalities to be able to construct that new road, to do something with a bridge. All those infrastructure projects take time to even get started. So once they get started, that's when the borrowing is going to happen. And I think that we kind of got through 2023 with the huge spike in yields we saw in October that scared a lot of people. Now that it's kind of more normalized, I think that uh, the issuers are going to come back into the market. And like you said, they're going to come in when they have to. And when they don't have to and rates are high they stayed uh, as far away as they can Hmm. Um, so now it's the opportunity is going to be there and i think they're going to come in quite strongly
4: so who are buyers of municipal bonds these days i'm like retail versus institutional how does that split look today and maybe how has that changed over the last decade or so
8: yeah you know that's one of the most interesting things and that's one of the things we're trying to be aware of uh, at swbc is the retail investor has historically been a strong participant in municipal market Um, their participation has shifted less uh, away from the funds uh, ETFs have kind of picked up some of the fund bandwidth and fund opportunity, but the um, the small accounts that are managed by a portfolio managers, so they're professionally managed, but it's an SMA. Those types of accounts are really where most of the opportunity is, and that has grown uh, by more than double in the past several years. So those investors are really uh, participating strongly and uh, reaping the benefits. Tax-free yield, what's not to like?
4: Yeah, e- exactly. And so... What's the credit quality in the municipal space? I'm, I'm actually surprised. I mean, there's always the Puerto Rico issue or something out of Illinois or something like that. But other than some of those weird situations, I haven't heard of any cracks of note in the municipal bond market really for years.
8: It's been several years. You know, you look at the fact that the, the federal government allowed for um – some of the infrastructure bill, some of the opportunity for federal aid during the pandemic and COVID. So a lot of issuers have built up a a reserve of funds as a result of that. So their credits are actually quite high, higher than they possibly would otherwise be. But generally the municipal market is really, really solid footing. I mean, most of the space take, most of the investment and opportunity takes space in the double B, triple B and higher investment grade. That's where the vast majority of issuance is. And the default rate on those is less than 1%. So the only thing time you hear about something like that is sketch your credits in odd different markets Healthcare is notoriously a challenge some of the housing market as well and then you get the odd issuers and the Puerto Rico story always rears its head every and then once there's in a the while.
4: mall across the river there exactly what's going on with that what's it the dream mall uh, I think that's the name of it. yeah yeah
8: somebody I mean, what I mean
4: that is fascinating to me I remember when that issue came to market I said I know nothing about the dream mall I know nothing about the municipal bond market, but I wouldn't go near that bond issuance. I mean, there's, I couldn't see how that thing would actually be successful, much less pay me back my principal. Have I, you been there?
8: Uh, no,
1: that's still the point. not. <laughs> that's the point. Me neither. <laughs> I know.
8: You know, it's in a tough location for yep. for New Yorkers, especially. It, it's it's not a, easier fun to go over the bridge and then travel through there. And you know, uh, my kids have been there to go on some of the rides and do some of those things, and they enjoy it. But uh, I haven't stepped foot in it myself either, and it's it's a it's a tough credit, that's for sure.
4: All right, what are some of the sectors? That you think are going to be uh, interesting in 2024?
8: Um, You know, I always mention things that are. Quality revenue bonds that I really like. And, you know, you go down the path of water and sewer bonds. Everyone has to pay their water bill. They need sewer. So I think in terms of higher credit quality, that's definitely on the plate. I think that offers opportunity. Other things that make sense are some of the better, higher quality education bonds, uh, the well-known names, for lack of a better way of putting it, Uh, and then transportation, transportation revenue bonds, uh, bigger airport revenue bonds. Those sorts of things are going to be on the uptrend, I believe. How
4: about education? Because we've seen some stories about how if you're a small midsize, liberal arts college, that's a tough business. And I've seen some issuance. I've seen some issuance from uh, secondary schools, prep schools and things like that. I can't remember which the issuer was, but one of the top prep schools. How about those education-backed bonds? How do you think about those?
8: You know, it. it, it to your point, it depends on the name and depends on the issuer and the credit. You really gotta, gotta kinda understand and dig into the weeds a little bit to understand what is the underlying credit quality of each one. And to your point, you know, you stick to the higher names that are very well known, The the place where it's Ivy Leagues, et cetera, you know, those names stand up very well. They have very strong participation. Their endowment programs are enormous. Um, And when you look at their acceptance rates, they still have low acceptance percentages, meaning a lot of people still want to go there and very few still get in. You look down the curve and you start looking at some of the um, less well-known issuers, the, the liberal arts colleges that you mentioned, they're having a tougher time attracting and retaining people. And I think COVID was not helpful for that construct. They they definitely suffered in terms of uh, people wanting to go to college and or how they engage colleges directly.
4: So just real quick on Puerto Rico, are they out of the woods yet? I can't remember kind of where we are there. It's been they're, so they're, drawn out.
8: Yeah, they're not quite out of the woods yet. Uh, that story seems to be the story that never ends. So they're, they're in challenging times. There's constant discussions over, you know, what's gonna happen with the debt service and who's gonna be paying it and who's responsible and then what, the, what's, what is the restructuring gonna look like? And uh, you know, that's getting into the weeds of a very challenging
4: yeah stuff. Luckily, we have the Joe Mysack who covers the municipal bond market for like a gajillion years at Bloomberg News and he keeps us up to date on what's happening there. Uh, so we appreciate that. Chris Brigati. thanks for joining us. Chris Bergatti is the senior vice president Director of Strategic Planning at SWBC, based in San Antonio. You're
7: listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
4: All right, the two things from twenty twenty one from a stock market perspective for me that were just came out of nowhere. One was AI, mm-hmm, okay, of course. course. And the other one was this weight loss stuff, the GLP1s stuff. Oh, now,
1: we go, v. We go, I v. mean, Zempick.
4: you're a workout maven, so this is a non issue <laughs> for you, but for a lot of people, it's huge. I could see how this could just be massive, particularly if they get into a, a pill format. My question is always who pays for it? Simone Foxman. Reporter for Bloomberg News, TV, radio, and all that kind of stuff. She's everywhere. She <laughs> did a lot of reporting on this. has got a great story out on the Bloomberg terminal here. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Simone, help us figure out, because I think you can make an argument that almost, well, gajillions of people in the U.S., in theory, would want to take this drug, will want to take this drug, are taking this drug. But my question is who pays for it? How does that all work?
0: Well so there are different classes of people, right? You have your people who are insured uh, and their employers maybe pay for their health care. And some of them who are insured pay for it themselves. Uh, Then you have, you know, people on Medicare. And then you have eighty five million people, low income people typically on Medicaid. Uh, and this is the area that we really dive into, as well as some of those insured people. because a lot of this burden is gonna fall on states. States spend on average over a quarter of their uh, overall state budget on healthcare costs. And those, you know, for many states, including New York, are skyrocketing. And it turns out, you know, this is going to be a larger and larger part of their budget as they try and pay for Medicaid costs, which is is part of, uh, is, is a responsibility they have. They contribute to that as well as their own state employees. Now, right now, most insurers, this is private, public, et cetera, Pay for GLP-1s for people with type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. but the whole idea uh, that we have been hearing from Wall Street is people who just are seeking this for weight loss who are overweight. They're the ones that are ultimately going to be seeking this, and that's why this is
1: such a massive market. Yeah, the cosmetic weight loss. Yes, I mean, exactly. Eli yeah. Lilly they came out yesterday and they warned about people doing it for this. But it's know?
0: but it's not just cosmetic weight loss. It should yes. be very you know noted that this has. All these variety of health benefits, uh, the twenty percent reduction that uh, I, Novo Nordisk showed among patients who had a health, had a heart condition, or some history of, of heart disease, uh, as well as obesity, uh, you know, that's an enormous savings potentially for insurers, including public insurers, but at a cost of a thousand dollars a month that's for these the, drugs.
4: That's the number that jumped out of me from your reporting: thousand dollars a month. And, you know, a lot of these you know, government officials saying that's going to we don't have that money.
0: And the first government officials that we're really starting to hear from are the ones who control the state health plans. Again, not every state health plan covers this for weight loss. They almost all do for uh, subject to restrictions for type 2 diabetes. But the ones who do, including North Carolina and Connecticut, have both flagged that this is a real rising cost. Uh, And in North Carolina, this was a subject of very heated meeting over whether or not they should continue covering these drugs for weight loss at all and ultimately they decided anyone who was on it up till january 1st can stay on it uh for that reason but people who ha- are just seeking these for weight loss beyond this specifically I mean, got with some sex-enda. you got no. some
4: crazy numbers in here just in terms of the medicaid's growing glp1 bill here are the numbers mm-hmm. in 2020 3.3 billion in 2021, 5 billion, and in 2022, 7.9 billion. So that's just we Medicaid. Have,
0: and we have some limited data for 2023. I can tell you already, the n- number is bigger. Wow. But,
1: but here's the thing. You have to be on this drug forever. I right. mean, this is not yeah. a one-time thing, a couple of months. No, you have to continue to be on this, correct?
0: Yeah. And, and the thing is you know, some of these costs, the costs that you just mentioned, Paul, a lot of these are driven by type two diabetes patients. In fact, I was going through these numbers. The biggest driver of that increase that you talk about between 2020 and 2022 is for a drug called Trulicity. This is a GLP-1 yep. that has it has been out there, may cause some weight loss, but it's not the Ozempic. It's not the Wegovy, It's not the one with all this name recognition really for weight loss. So it's there's still a long way to go if we just are to cover all the type 2 diabetes patients. And we calculated in our analysis that that bill, if all the type 2 diabetes patients that actually deserve this, According to the research we're covered, that would be forty-one billion dollars for Medicaid alone. Don't we can't even take in state health care plans there.
4: I mean, I'm not sure how to do the math, and or I'm sure it's being done within the healthcare industry. But if more people are on these GLP-1 drugs, okay, that's an incremental cost, and can the system bear that? But you offset that by presumably some of the issues they won't have to deal with, you know, obesity, di- diabetes, things like that. And that goes down to, I've even seen medical device company stock- stocks sell off because there'll be less knee replacements, hip replacements, all that kind of thing. I'm not sure how to quantify that benefit versus what I know is the upfront cost.
0: This is an incredibly problematic analysis. Oof. We know that um, obesity itself, is very expensive. Diabetes is $327 billion in medical costs a year. That's one out of every $4 spent. Um, That said, You know, and and, like, don't bring into account the uh, potential benefits of having people who are not spending their entire day on dialysis, you know, um, who are contributing to the economy. You know, that said, some of the early indications are, and um, the the CBO has done, has kind of done a little bit of thinking about this, is the cost is still too high, you know?
1: And the, and the supply is kind of being limited at this time. So what do you, do? I mean, do you ration it out? What do you do at this point?
0: Yeah, the supply being limited means that the likes of Novo Nordisk have limited uh, who these drugs go to first, uh, essentially. Um, and they're going to the diabetic patients first because it has it's more meaningful for them on a whole, on an aggregate basis, immediately. But, you know... They're ramping up supply. Uh, the the problem is the demand is just so huge. How do you ever bring down costs meaningfully enough to make it worth it? Now, it should be noted that some of these costs that we've talked about here are pre rebate. So, um, prescription costs for Medicaid essentially have. Uh, due to manufacturer rebates, and s- these these are the same. And but the- these are the numbers we're kind of talking about. I think they give a good indication of how significant this is going to be.
4: Well, I like. I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of North the state of the state of North Carolina. Not necessarily the University of North Carolina, being a, a Duke grad. But here I noticed in your reporting here that the debate has played out most heatedly in North Carolina, where Novo Nordis has three plants that make drugs for obesity and diabetes. Yet they're at the forefront of the state trying to limit who you know what the state will pay for so it's very ironic there
0: and here there's also this incredible calculus as well so uh dale falwell who we will speak to later today on radio as well as on bloomberg tv um he you know is runs this plan and apparently the the prescription benefit manager cvs he says told him that if they start restricting the the population who can get drugs uh novo nordisk will cut the rebates they get so they'll have to pay much closer to 1349 the list price of you know we Govi, the weight loss version of uh one of these drugs and that's
4: 1349 yes for a month yes
0: versus wow. the 772 that they were currently paying so that makes the calculus even worse right <laughs> So I mean, essentially, if manufacturers threaten to cut these rebates because people are restricting that, I mean, it's this whole vicious cycle.
1: But I mean, they're pushing it. You know, Eli Lilly said it's going to launch this digital healthcare platform. You know, and that's really going to push right. it. They're going to home deliver some of these these medications. So they're they're pushing it.
0: And they're doing impact studies, talking yes. about the cost of obesity. That Eli Lilly has publicized a bunch of those or funded a bunch of those. Uh, they are lobbying state and federal officials. Mind you, Medicare is a, a federal thing and there are some officials on capitol hill who are saying medicare should cover this for medicare beneficiaries just for weight loss too Mm -hmm. i mean anytime you hear about this it's expanding the potential population of people who could get these and don't that doesn't even begin to take in the kind of marketing that we're seeing
4: all right i mean uh great reporting here uh simone simone foxman um you know with this story and along with your uh co-reporter laura uh, Namias. Namias, so Laura Namias, Simone Foxman, great reporting here, great story. Ozempic manias, billions in bills are coming for U.S. taxpayers. Uh, check it out on the Bloomberg terminal, Bloomberg.com. It really, It's really good, it's got a lot of data that I have not seen before in terms of the, the cost and how the costs are broken down. Uh, what are the drugs that are in the marketplace? Who's who's in there um, and where's the, the money going and where's the money coming from? So, so great reporting, Simone, thanks so much.
7: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
4: In my next life, I want to come back as a healthcare M&A banker. Those guys get paid every day. It seems like every Monday we come in and there's another mega- Healthcare deal. So let's see if that's going to continue here. Kristen uh, Pothier, uh, principal, national and global HCLS deal advisory and strategy leader. Kristen, we got to deal with that uh, title there. We got to work on that. KPMG. I mean, if you, uh, let's just say you're the global deal person. That's what I, I'm going to go with at KPMG. Uh, they know what's going on out there in the world. So, Kristen, talk to us about the landscape for healthcare M&A. It just seems like it's just a It's almost like a a way of doing business for this industry. If you can't come up with the drug or the therapeutic or whatever in your own R&D, you go out and buy it. Is that kind of where we are?
9: Absolutely. And when you look at healthcare and life sciences in general, it really is one of those recession-proof industries. People are getting sick. People get sick worldwide. They need better medication. They need faster medication. They need more access to therapeutics, diagnostics, devices. And regardless of whether we're in a major pandemic or whether we're in a major recession, we still have people that are getting sick. And so all of our groups in this space, whether they be healthcare firms, life sciences firms, they have to continue to innovate and innovation in medicine is precision medicine. It is the future of medicine. It is generative AI. It is putting together a number of different types of pieces of the ecosystem so that we get to our patients faster. So you are absolutely right. Both inorganic and organic strategies are absolutely essential in this space. And that is what we have seen um, throughout the years, even as the deal market has softened over the past couple of years.
1: You know, I want to get more into that innovation that you were talking about. I, I hosted a panel for Bloomberg. It was about AI and one of the companies there was healthcare and they said AI is playing a big part. It is a game changer. So if you can get a little bit more into that for
9: us. Absolutely. And it's a game changer across all of the different subsectors of healthcare and life sciences. Remember, there are a number of different groups that are playing into this ecosystem. Our pharma companies need generative AI to really help take it, take their rapidity of their pipelines, make Everything going through the pipeline a lot faster, a lot more efficient, a lot more effective. Our health systems are using it both in the front office and the back office to take all of the patient data, all the patient claims, everything that they're getting hit with, and develop new patient journeys, new sample journeys for those patients to get them better and more effective therapeutics. And what I would say is that over the last year alone, the amount of time and energy and diligence that has been spent on generative AI, the companies, the partnerships, how we're even dealing with the space has just gone snowballed um, throughout the industry. And so we're getting more and more questions on that every day. Uh, I would say that the amount of deal making actual MA in generative AI is less so than the partnerships and all of the questions around generative AI. But in 2024, we expect that to increase.
4: So what is precision medicine? Exactly. And from your perspective.
9: Absolutely. Precision medicine is the best therapeutic or um, care for the best patient at the best time. And so when you think about that and you think about what I just said, it isn't a buzzword. It's the future of medicine. We want to be able to take one patient, look at that patient and provide them the most effective in efficient care. And so that's what we see. And when we take that precision medicine out to precision healthcare, it adds in the entire ecosystem, whether it be the diagnostics that surround those therapeutics, whether it be the patient services, and whether it be in a domestic market or a worldwide market.
1: Now talk to them about hospitals. They're facing these big financial pressures. You have workers, there's a shortage of workers. How is this gonna change the industry moving into 2024?
9: Absolutely. Both generative AI and precision help, health, health happen to really help what you just mentioned. When you think about how many workers we have to put in the workforce, when you think about how many therapeutics that we need to save people's lives, if we can get more precise diagnostics, more precise services to our patients in a quicker amount of time in those health systems, that allows us to take our workforce and refine our workforce to only who we need. It also allows us to upskill our workforce, maybe with bringing in people that could be upskilled faster through generative AI approaches and then allow us to manipulate and change our workforce to better suit the needs of what we need in the future.
4: All right, so from a deal perspective, Kristen, um, what sectors do you think are gonna be most in play over the next 12 months?
9: When you look across healthcare and life sciences and you look at the the lows of 2023 and you look at what's recovering quicker, each one of the subsectors in life sciences continues to be very exciting and for different reasons. Within biopharma, the innovation around cell and gene therapy, within a lot of our other biologics, within companion therapeutics is continuing to move us through the pipeline and look at deals that are continuing to change the portfolio of each one of our pharmaceutical companies. When you look at diagnostics, we had a little bit of a lull last year, of course, as as our diagnostics companies went into the new normal post-COVID, but now they are looking for interesting point of care, interesting innovations within diagnostics to help pharmaceutical companies and to help services in better ways. Devices are always going to be one of those areas where we keep on looking to say, is this the year? Uh, device device companies had a harder time during COVID, of course, as elective procedures really tanked. All those elective procedures, hips, knees, et cetera, all have come up again. And now as our health systems continue to promote those elective procedures, continue to bring them in, our device companies are looking very carefully at new innovative ways that they can bring new devices to the fold and emerge as the victors in that particular area. In healthcare, when you look at health systems, when you look at payers, what and when you look at physician groups, we're seeing health IT and physician groups as being the most exciting areas and continued consolidation and thoughts on health systems, as the health systems continue to recover from COVID and really be very thoughtful about their costs, paired with the innovation that they're seeing from life sciences. Life sciences and healthcare are inexorably linked sectors. And so as we look at this overall, we're continuing to see the dynamics between innovation between those two teams.
4: Kristen, thanks so much for joining us. Really fascinating stuff there. Kristen Pothier, Principal, National and Global, HCLS Deal Advisory and Strategy Leader for KPMG. You're
7: listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
4: Let's talk about this jobs market again. uh, It is resilient. It is robust. I don't know what you – it doesn't matter. It just seems like you can't crack this labor market. There continues to be some pretty solid demand. Julia Pollack joins us. She's a chief economist at ZipRecruiter. So, Julia, we got some uh, better than I think expected uh, jobs data today in terms of the number of jobs and then also the wages. What are you seeing out there at ZipRecruiter when you look out there at the labor market?
2: It was, a, it was a mixed jobs report, but yes, you know, zooming out, 2023 was a remarkable year in the labor market. We not just dodged a recession, we you know, completely, completely avoided a uh, recession in the labor market, uh, even though it did slow substantially. Um, and not only that, it was actually one of the best years on record when it comes to the unemployment rate, the average unemployment rate. It, was, it ties for fifth place with 1968. Wow! So pretty, pretty strong year overall.
1: And talk about some of the trends that are going on. Um, we used to talk about that trend of, of job switching. Is that still safe or is it best to just stay in place?
2: So the data that came out earlier in the week, the JOLTS data, showed a pretty substantial decline in job switching. So the quits rate fell to the lowest rate since before, uh, since, since early 2018. And that suggests that you know the Great Resignation is fully completely over. Uh, And the hires rate also plunged uh, to the lowest level since 2014. And so the reason that uh, overall employment levels are going up is not because of aggressive hiring. It's more because of very slow turnover and churn. Uh, And and what we're seeing at ZipRecruiter is a continued gradual orderly cooling in the labor market that's likely to persist until the Fed takes its foot off the rate pedal and allows... The economy to you know invest and in boom again.
4: So Julia, what is I guess employee hoarding? Is it a thing? Is it real?
2: <laughs> so if you look at layoffs and firings, they have been about 20% lower this year than was normal between 2016 and 2019. Okay, so we're seeing historically unusually low firing and layoffs at a time when there are many industries where activity has taken a huge knock from high interest rates. Uh, If you look at the construction sector, it's actually up over 400,000 jobs since before the pandemic. industries like banking where i think if you look at a lot of the numbers it hasn't been so great right lots and lots of bank deposits have left that zip system like 870 billion dollars um bank stocks have fallen pretty substantially and and uh, uh un- you know underperformed the s&p 500 by the largest amount ever um and yet overall employment in that sector has been flat as a pancake so yes i think there is a sign that uh employers are holding on to the workers they've got even in industries that are pretty slow because they are confident that things are gonna turn around soon.
1: Well, and when you talk about that, you know, managing this headcount, so is it that they're relying on attrition or rather than doing layoffs, what what, what do you see?
2: Yes, but even overall headcount numbers are staying pretty flat and stable. You know. One exception is transportation and warehousing, where we are seeing some sort of right-sizing in that sector now. After it posted the largest gain since the pandemic, Uh, so you know, as people get back to normal and spend more on services, uh, and and good spending uh, slows, growth in good spending slows. um, That industry is shedding jobs, but most are not. Uh, Employment is pretty stable and flat and resilient. That said, the only only sectors that are really contributing to growth at the moment are these three largely acyclical sectors, the government, healthcare, and leisure and hospitality. They accounted for 92% of all jobs added in the last six months.
4: So Julia, people are at work. My question is, where are they working? Are they working at home? Are they working in the office? Where are we on that these days?
2: So it's a very, very mixed bag uh remote work has pretty much stabilized now at around 25 to 28 percent of all worked days uh, up from about five percent before the pandemic and this is the year when that really stabilized there, many companies uh brought workers back to the office but many other companies started afresh in a remote first posture and uh among companies uh sort of flexibility became the norm. The five-day in-office work week uh, became very rare. Only 16% of companies with office oh, jobs Oh, so I'm one of the special in the people office then. Five days. You're one of the special oh, unicorns. I knew I was special, see? Most people get at least one, two, three, or four days off so I hear. Uh, out out of the office a week. And we heard a lot of stories in
1: 2023 about the great resignation. Is that gone in the days of 2024?
2: It's gone. Turnover is not just back to pre-pandemic normal. It's actually lower. It's uh, it's about where it was in early 2018, and um, and that is a really reliable measure of how much economic opportunity there really is for unemployed workers, for uh, workers to to find better jobs. Uh, and I think it suggests that that there is some cooling in this labor market, and that uh, workers are finding it a little bit harder to find new jobs and to find the kinds of jobs that they want right now.
4: All right, my, I guess, employment ready offspring, they're all employed. But how about folks coming out of college and graduate school? How's the that entry market uh, right now?
2: So surveys of employers suggest that they are projecting hiring fewer members of the graduating class of 2024 than of previous classes. That said, those projections can change. Uh, it's quite possible that 2024 could be like 2023 again, in that companies start the year expecting to cut headcount and cut costs more aggressively and then realize, wait a second, there's no recession on hand, the consumer's still strong, I need workers, uh, and, and actually hire more than they're expecting at the start of the year, especially if we see interest rates come down and investment uh, rise again. And New Year, people out there looking for
1: a new job. Do you have to rip up the script when it comes to your resume? I mean, if you wanna start all over again, what should you do differently when when you're putting it together? Is it more about skills? What what should you have on there that really stands out?
2: Yeah, so it's, this is not a chronology. It's more like an advertising pamphlet showing your, most, your, your greatest hits, your most relevant skills and experience. That's, I think, how people should think about their resumes. Uh, put the relevant experience up first. And uh, and then, you know, it's really important these days to have a digital uh, job seeker profile. Oh so upload your resume, make sure it can be read by computers and parsed by these uh, you know, job marketplaces, uh, so that you're actually getting your foot through the door and getting past the robots into a human. How about in,
4: in the trades? Um, people tell me that there's still a shortage of tradesmen and women out there. How does that part of the market look to you
2: yes so there are many industries with uh aging Workforces with a lot of retirements and with shrinking pipelines of new talent. New younger generations of workers are not as interested in those roles. Uh, they also are seeing a work, a labor force with with a lot more flexible opportunities, and so they're going to the remote jobs and the tech jobs and the influencer jobs. Uh, there's tremendous interest still in marketing roles and PR roles and those kinds of things, and much less interest in doing you know hard. Uh, labor in in manufacturing or construction. Um, That said, wages in those fields are rising in order to deal with the the supply shortage and perhaps you'll see a a tipping point where people start to, you know, take more interest in these roles. And what about the gig sector? Um, I've heard a lot of talk about there's more freelancers out there.
1: That's what people are looking to do more. Is that still growing into 2024 or is that
2: cutback, you think, this year, a little cutback? Unfortunately, uh, official data on gig work is, is not very good, and we haven't really been tracking it uh, over over time in a consistent way. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a black box. It's hard to know. We can look at the company's um, you know, earnings statements about how many uh, users they have. Um, Look, broadly, we do see a lot of interest among job seekers on ZipRecruiter in those kinds of gig roles because of the flexibility they offer. There are many young people who sort of live from hand to mouth and have fun and watch video games and do what they want to do. And if they need cash and need to buy groceries, need to buy dinner, they you know log on to an app and deliver groceries for a couple of hours and then buy their own and then go back to doing what they were doing. That It is quite common to, to work that way these days. That said, there's some new research showing that once AI tools, uh, ChatGPT was launched. Generative AI uh, demand for other kinds of freelancers started to fall. Right. Uh, so interesting. Yeah, all right, we'll keep an eye, a eye on that. White collar freelancer.
4: Yeah, you just walk across or walk through any uh, local coffee shop, and I'm like, what are these people doing here? You know, they all got their laptops out, and they look like they're doing something, creating value. I don't know. Thanks for listening
3: to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.